you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 2, the Gospel of John, your New Testament. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, no worries, you can find the text printed for you in your bulletin or also on the screen behind me. Uh, This is God's holy and inspired word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, they went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us that your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And so we pray this morning that you would take this word and apply it to our hearts, give light to our hearts. I pray that you would also use this word to teach us and correct us and train us and challenge us so that we don't leave here the same. And so we pray for your spirit to come. We need your help this morning. Convince us that we're a bigger mess than we realize. And at the very same time, in you is more grace and mercy and love than we could possibly imagine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm not sure if you're into reading biographies. If you're a biography reader, uh, I normally am not because they're way too long. <laughs> um, if you know, if read biographies, you'll know many of them are over 500 pages because there are so many details uh, about the person's life that they are trying to communicate. Most of them over 500 pages at least with dates and facts and various details in a person's life. The Gospel of John is a biography of sorts of Jesus, written by one of Jesus' closest friends, John. But here's what's interesting. In my Bible, your print might be bigger, but in my Bible, this biography, what's so interesting about it is it's only 22 pages. And it's not that John didn't have anything to say about Jesus. If you have your Bible and you go to the last verse of the entire book of John, which I I love this verse, it's amazing. Listen to what John says. Now there are many other things that Jesus did. 
Were every one of them written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Isn't that amazing? And so it's not that he didn't have anything to say. So why 22 pages? Why so short? I don't know, but we know this. Whatever John does communicate to us is very selective. It's very, very important. He does not waste space with stories and filler. John is very intentional because he's choosing things that would specifically make a point about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so because of that, this first story or first miracle out of seven in the book of John, we need to pay attention to. We need to really think about and think about the reason why it is placed here right at the beginning as the first one. Because I don't know about you, when I read this, I'm thinking, okay, like, out of all the things we could have communicated, I mean, Jesus is the most significant man to ever walk the face of the earth. And as we learned a couple of weeks ago, God in the flesh, you would think he would start with something a little bigger than just a small country wedding where Jesus comes and does a small miracle, or actually a big miracle, but very few people even really notice. I think it's actually really significant for us because I think it's evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. That this really did happen. Because if you and I were to write a story about Jesus, no one in their right mind would begin this way. We would begin with something more flashy. We would do Jesus walking on water or raising someone from the dead, if that's how we're going to introduce his ministry to the world. Or maybe Jesus healing someone of some disease. But John doesn't do that. And the question is, why doesn't he do that? Well, remember, and I'm going to say this maybe every week, why is John writing the book? So that we might remember who Jesus is, know who he is, and through knowing who Jesus is, we might believe in him, and find life in his name. The point of the passage, or the main idea this morning, is Jesus is life. And John writes this passage and gives it to us right at the beginning because it shows us very, very vividly a picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Friends, there is no greater summary of all that Jesus came to bring and what Christianity is all about than John chapter 2, the wedding of Cana. And so with that in mind, we're going to ask three questions of the text this morning. Who is Jesus? Secondly, what's the problem at the wedding? And lastly, what's the solution? So who is Jesus, the problem, and the solution? Let's look at number one, who is Jesus? Look at verses 8 and 9. So one of the people in those two verses that you see, a character in the story, is this person called the master of the feast. He's mentioned a couple of times, uh, and what is the master of the feast? What was their role? Well, to put it in today's terms, they were the hospitality coordinator. They were the party planner. They were the hired life of the party, presiding over the wedding to make sure everyone had a good time. Our family, one of our students got married a couple of weeks ago in Nashville, and they had a wedding reception at the Bellmead Country Club. And we walked in, 
and there is this person on a walkie-talkie and a headset and a clipboard, and they're walking around, and they're making sure the trains are running on time. They're making sure when the first dance, that it starts when it's supposed to, and that when the cake, it's cut at the right time. They're making sure the band is playing the right songs and getting the crowd energized. She's walking around making sure the food is, you know, full and there's silverware and plate settings and all of those kinds of things. They were there to make sure it was a good party. That's the master of the feast. And in John chapter 2, this party is about to die. And Jesus comes and, in a sense, saves the party. Notice Jesus doesn't kill the party. He breathes life into the party. Jesus comes here and saves this person's job because he miraculously turns water into wine. And he doesn't do it on a small scale. Look at the passage. He takes 120 gallons of water and he turns it into not the cheap stuff, not average wine, but the choicest, best wine that you have ever tasted in your entire life. So what does that tell us about Jesus? I think it tells us quite a bit. Friends, Jesus is the true master of the feast. He's the true wine giver. He's the ultimate joy giver, the life of the party, the one that you and I have been searching for all of our lives, the one that we were made for. And so what can we learn from this, this morning? Well, first, and I don't mean this to sound disrespectful at all, but I do think it's very uh, important and worth noting. Look at verse 2. When we come to stories in the Bible, and particularly one like this, we think that Jesus was going to this wedding so he could say, look, I'm a big deal, I'm going to show my glory, I'm going to do some big miracle, and everybody's going to know, yes, he is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. Okay. (laughs) But that's not the feel of the passage. Look at at verse 2. Jesus was invited to the party along with his disciples. And he seemingly fits right in. And so here it is. Jesus doesn't go to this party with the purpose of doing a miracle. He goes to have fun. He's going to have a great time and to hang out with people. And the opportunity for the miracle presented itself. And you're thinking, okay, where's he going with this? (laughs) So what? Friends, Christians... We have so spiritualized Jesus in Christianity that we have made Jesus into this weird guy that nobody can relate to. Jesus is not a weird guy that no one can relate to. Look through the Gospels. Look through the Gospels. Jesus had a social life. He was invited to lots of parties, lots of social functions, and I think we could even make a case by reading through the Gospels that he was invited and actually showed up at parties that you and I wouldn't dare be seen at. Jesus is apparently not a social killjoy. 
He's actually quite normal and someone that we would have wanted to hang out with 100% human, shockingly so. I think it gives us some insight, though, as well to the way you and I typically think about the Christian life. If we're honest this morning, oftentimes when we think of Jesus, we look at Jesus, and maybe that's the way we've grown up learning about Christianity, but he's the guy that shuts down the party, right? Not the guy that turns water into wine, but takes the wine and turns it into water. That's oftentimes what we think. Because if we're honest, and I saw this all of the time on the college campus, and maybe this is where you are this morning as well, but we often think of our faith or Jesus that that's something that's got to go on the back burner of our life if we're really going to have joy and true happiness. And when I get older and kind of settle down, then I'll follow Jesus because he's just here to kill all my joy and to tell me what I can and cannot do. That's often the way we think about it. We've been taught and learned that Christianity, and it does involve a list of rules that God commands us to keep. But often our focus is on suck it up, stay out of trouble, obey these rules or God is going to get you. Does that sound very warm and inviting and make you want to follow Jesus? No. And friends, that's why a lot of the world, that's the way they think about Christianity. They think it's a downer and they, were, they would think to themselves, that sounds like misery. Why in the world would anyone want to do that? Friends, if there is not a note of festive joy in your life, then you have missed something about Jesus. If there's not a note of joy, then you've missed something because Jesus coming into the world He came to bring festive joy. He came to bring life. He came to give the best wine. Because Jesus is the Lord of the feast. And maybe this morning you're thinking, Jason, I hear you, but life is so full of pain and suffering. How can you say that? And I say, I totally agree. Oftentimes we have to fight for joy, don't we? And I think maybe an application is if you're in the midst of grief and heartache and pain, one of the applications is keep fighting for joy. We've got to fight for joy because if we don't, we will miss everything that Jesus came to bring into the world. We will miss everything that he's about. Secondly, the problem of the wedding. Look at verse 3. It really sums up the problem of the wedding, doesn't it? Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to Jesus and says they have no wine. And to understand how big a deal this was, let me bring out two things. First, in the ancient Near East, weddings were huge affairs. They were the central event in a particular town or village. Sometimes these weddings would last several days, maybe even a week. And it was the groom and his parents, their family... That was their responsibility to make sure the wine didn't run out, to make sure there was enough food to make the party last for the whole week. And so if you were to run out of wine, it was tremendous shame on the family. 
and the parents. Also, in one of the commentaries I was reading, mentioned that an early Jewish resource even stated that the family could be sued for running out of wine at a wedding. The bottom line is that this was a really big deal and a big problem. The second thing, though, is if you look about in the Bible and what it says about wine, it's always associated with blessing and joy. From cover to cover, when you see that wine is connected to real substantial and lasting blessing and joy, then you start to see that this actually has a deeper meaning, doesn't it? When Mary tells Jesus that the wine is running out, there's actually a second meaning. Not only does it bring great shame on the couple, but there's also here a description of humanity without Jesus. See, the Bible assumes that an individual that does not have a right relationship with God through Jesus, that their life will be characterized by having a joy that does not last. You know that's true. We know it. Every party, even the best party, doesn't it comes to an end and leaves us wanting more. The new car or the new clothes or the new house or the new toy, the career change, the new job, the new set of circumstances and the next exotic vacation, we think, yes, that will finally bring me lasting joy that will finally be substantial. And then what happens? The wine runs out. The joy runs out. Several years ago, there was a writer that wrote in a New York newspaper, and her name was Cynthia Himmel. And she had spent lots of times around actors and actresses who were trying to make it big, trying to make it famous. And so she knew them before they had made it big, when they were bussing tables and just trying to make ends meet. And listen to what she says in this article. I pity celebrities... No, I really do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. Because you see, they wanted fame. They worked and they pushed. And the morning after each was made famous, however, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing that they were striving for, that thing that they thought was going to make everything okay and finally provide them with personal fulfillment, It happened, and nothing changed. They woke up the next morning, and they were still themselves. You see, the celebrities thought that real joy came when they finally made it big and finally got what they had always wanted, and it happened, and the wine ran out, and they were insufferable. You couldn't even be around them. Friends, the problem at the wedding is our problem too, isn't it? How much of our life is spent looking for lasting joy in everything else but Jesus? If I can just get that position in the company, if I can just make that sale, life will finally work, we'll finally be to a place to where we can enjoy things and be happy and it happens And the wine runs out. If I can just be in a relationship, if I can just date that guy, or if I can just get married 
I'll be able to take a deep breath and life will finally work for me. And that happens and the wine runs out. You see, the problem here is much more than bringing shame to a family. The problem here points to a larger problem and that is what life is like when we are separated from God. It shows us that if we try to live without Jesus, the wine will always run out and we'll never be satisfied. Thirdly, what's the solution? Look at verse 4. Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes and says, they have no wine, and then look at what Jesus says to her. Woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And as you hear that, you're thinking, whoa, Jesus, that's no way to talk to your mother. And I would agree with that so that we got to work that out, don't we? Jesus, contrary to how it feels to you, it's not confrontational. Jesus is not angry. (laughs) He's not uh, being rude here. How do we know? Well, think about how Mary responds. She doesn't respond put off or react in a way that would make her think that he's being rude. She's not offended. Secondly, though, Jesus, we see him address, use the word woman in other places in John. Remember, he's at the cross and he's hanging there and he goes talking to his mother again. Woman, this is your son. And basically, he's commending Mary to John's care. And so it's used in a very tender way. And then that the woman at the well, if you read that interaction, it's very friendly. Jesus also refers to her as woman. And so the conclusion here is that Jesus is not being rude. He's not being offensive. He's simply looking at his mother and saying, not yet. It's an expression of polite distance. His response here, and this is really important is he starts to indicate that he's in another world, that he's distant, that he's clearly thinking about something else. And then the question becomes, what's he thinking about? And Tim Keller was extremely helpful here in helping me see this and connect the dots. And it makes total sense if you think about it. Jesus is thinking about his wedding. That's what you do at a wedding, isn't it? You think about your wedding day when you got married and what it was like. Or if you're single and you're at a wedding, you think about, who am I going to marry? Is this what my wedding's going to be like? I want to do this. I want to have this song. Your mind will will be soon. And your mind goes crazy thinking about the wedding. And yes, I realize that for some of you, weddings bring up a lot of pain because maybe you thought you would be married and you're not. Or maybe they bring up pain because... You thought marriage was going to save you. And instead, it's been really hard and really disappointing. But I think the point still comes through that weddings affect us. They move us, and they're intended to. Because if you look at the Bible, you know that when Jesus talks about the church and his relationship to his people, what image does he use? The image of marriage. And I love, the Bible begins with a wedding and ends with a wedding, right? God officiates the first wedding in Genesis chapter 2, and then we get to the end, and the Bible says this entire world, all of us are headed towards a wedding. 
And the writer of the Gospel, John, writes the book of Revelation. And in, John, in Revelation 19, he says, I saw a holy city coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And then a voice saying, Blessed are those that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, every wedding that you've ever attended is a picture and a foretaste of that wedding. Every bride and groom that you've ever seen, they are a picture of that wedding. And then the next thing is, well, okay, Jason, but Jesus, aren't weddings supposed to be happy? In your wedding day supposed to be a joyous occasion? Jesus seems distracted and stressed out and distant. Well, that's because Jesus is thinking here about what it's going to cost him to marry his bride. You see, in order for Jesus to get to his wedding day, he has to die. He has to go to a cross and shed his blood for his bride. Why is he distracted? Because he knows he's going to have to die. You're thinking, okay, where do we get that in this passage? Well, look at verse 4 again. It could not be any clearer. He says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. Do a word study on my hour on that phrase, and you'll find it used six times in the book of John, and every single time that phrase is used, Jesus is referring to the appointed hour of his death, the time in which he will be crucified on a cross. And so he's thinking about his death. I love Edmund Clowney. He's a professor, he's passed away, but he was at Westminster Theological Seminary. He said, Jesus sat a mix of all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst the, the world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. And it gets clearer. Look at verse 6. Here he took six stone water jars. And notice he could have used, he could have just said water jars. He makes a point to say what kind of water jars they were. They were for Jewish, the Jewish rites of purification. Remember, the Jews would have to clean themselves up because they were sinners in order to get into God's sight and be accepted by him. They had to wash themselves with water and clean themselves up. And so think about this. Jesus is saying, I'm bringing something new. I'm bringing to you the best wine. There is no more cleansing with water because I'm going to take these water jars and I'm going to fill them with the choicest wine that you've ever seen. And it becomes clear, doesn't it? when Jesus stands up at the Last Supper with his disciples and he holds up the cup of wine and when he sees the cup of wine, what does he see? His blood. Because remember, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins and this is so significant. Because we can stop washing ourselves. We can stop creating these ceremonial washing stations in our heart 
And that's what we do, isn't it? We create all sorts of things in order to establish our own righteousness and to clean ourselves up before a holy God. And Jesus says, no, my blood, I have come to shed my blood. That is how you are made clean. One of the privileges of doing campus ministry for 12 years is I've done a lot of weddings. And they never get owed. It never gets owed standing in the best seat in the house, next to the groom, seeing those doors fly open, and the bride come down the aisle, and you can also see the groom and how he's reacting. And what's interesting is like right before you go out, and when we're back kind of hanging out earlier in the day, the groom's high-fiving. I mean, he's talking football, cracking jokes with his friends. But all of that changes very quickly. When those doors open up, his lip starts to quiver, knees start to buckle, his eyes start to fill with tears because he is so enamored with the beauty of his bride walking down the aisle. Friends, if you still use ceremonial washing jars, when you hear that image, and you're staring at your own performance, when you hear that, here's what you say. Yes, I wish I loved Jesus that way. I need to love Jesus more. But if you go there, you totally miss the point. You totally miss the analogy because the answer is to receive the wild, unending love, fixed love of your bridegroom, Jesus who looks at you coming down the aisle and he sees you all the way to the bottom. He sees your sexual shame. He sees the things that keep you up at night. He sees the guilt that you've carried with you for years. He sees and understands that constant feeling of not being adequate and never measuring up as a parent. Anybody else feel that? Like you're not good enough. And he takes it all on himself. And he covers your shame. And he forgives you. And he gives you the best wedding garments you could possibly imagine. White, pure robes of his complete righteousness. His perfect righteousness. Friends, when Jesus is standing waiting for those doors to open and they open and he sees you covered in those garments, his knees buckle. His eyes fill with tears. He almost cannot contain himself. He wants to run down the aisle and grab you because he is so enamored with your beauty. Why? Because you are his beloved. And he gave his life in order to make you beautiful. Friends, Jesus came and he shed his blood so that you would have the joy of having the best wine the world has to offer. He came into the world in order to give you the best seat in the house at the greatest wedding feast that the world will ever know. A wedding where the wine will never run out, but it will flow forever and ever and ever. And friends, if you believe that and that gets a hold of your heart, That will change your life.
And so will you come to your bridegroom this morning? Will you come to Jesus and let him wash you? Will you come and be loved by him? Let's pray. Father, forgive us for creating ceremonial washing jars and trying to clean ourselves up and pay for our own sin. Lord, forgive us for looking for life in so many other places other than you. Give us a deep understanding of how much you you love us and the deep beauty of the gospel so that it will change us and so that we will love you more. Will you do this in Jesus' name? Amen.